You are listening to From the Midwest to the Middle East, the latest on U.S. tax, Israeli economy, and lots of in-between. Interviewing Israeli and international experts. Chicago, Chicago. Welcome to our podcast. I am Philip Stein, president of Philip Stein & Associates. I will show you Hi, I'm really happy today to have a very special guest, Yosef Abramowitz a name that speaks for itself. Yosef is an entrepreneur, environmentalist, educator, and human rights activist. Yosef was featured by CNN as one of the top six green pioneers worldwide and serves as president of the Arava Power Company and is now focused on serving as CEO and president of Energia Global. He is married to Rabbi Susan Silverman and they have five children, two of whom were adopted from Ethiopia. In 2008, Abramowitz was elected to the 19th spot on Israel's Green Movement, Knesset list, and along with his wife was part of Nomitsur's Ometz Lev party for the Jerusalem City Council. Yosef is an impact investor, activist, and former candidate for the Israeli president. Uh, Yosef, welcome. Welcome. Hello. Uh, it's really nice to have you, and uh, I think this will be a very interesting uh, conversation for my listeners. Uh, let me begin. Yosef, you're definitely a renaissance man for the 20th and 21st century. Back in my younger days, there was a popular term called flower children. I, I think you are, I would call you a child of the sun. Uh, what drew you to that, to the potential of our most powerful source of energy? Uh, I'll take child of the sun. I'm not sure about the uh, the Renaissance man. I, <laughs> okay. I, I, I think my 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 wife will be the first to scoff at uh, <laughs> my my weaknesses, which uh, I guess we don't get to talk about on these podcasts. So thank right. you. Um, look, I I had to, on the one hand, the the story begins when I was a kid. We were living in Brooklyn, Massachusetts, and uh, we were in a third floor walk up, and my window overlooked. Uh, a gas station, and when the Yom Kippur War hit and the Arab boycott, or the oil boycott hit, there was a long line of cars going all the way down Harvard Street, past the Israel bookstore, by the way, uh, and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this war in Israel somehow is related to this long lines of cars. We have to get off oil. And then a couple years later, Jimmy Carter wins the presidency, and one of the first things he does is put solar power, solar panels on the White House. And as a kid, I was like, oh, my God, you can actually do that? You can make energy from the sun? So that was, all, that was the, the beginnings of um, planting the seeds of the revolution. Um, in high school, I was involved in a science fair. I designed a little solar project. Um, but the, the, real, the real part of the story that has taken shape in the uh, you know, and miracles, we've seen miracles just happen in, in, in Israel and in Rwanda recently, is we, we went to Kibbutz Keturah in the Arava for, for three years as a family. And it's, it's right, in the, right in the center of the uh, sunniest part of this region. And it was, uh, it was uh, August 24th, 2006, and we get out of an air-conditioned van making Aliyah from Boston, Massachusetts, and the sun is setting, we open the doors and we're hit with this unbelievable heat. It was just bewildering. And we were, you know, we come out blinking and it's just so bright. And even though the sun is setting, it was burning us up like Superman laser beams. And I had said to myself, oh, I'm sure the whole place works on solar power. And uh, you can't ignore the sun down in the Aravah, especially in the summer, 
And right. so I teamed up with uh, Ed Hofflin from Kibbutz Keturah and David Rosenblatt from uh, New, New Jersey, and we, we formed the Israel's first solar company, and uh, the rest is history. You certainly have at least one book to tell you that, that history, which we won't discuss it, but we, we do know that uh, you do have an operating uh, solar power plant, the first one in Israel. Most Israelis think of the Negev as one large, expansive desert. Uh, I know you just mentioned Kibbutz Keturah. How did Kibbutz Keturah end up with the first solar power plant in Israel and not somewhere else in the vast Negev? So uh, I was a volunteer on Yenjadeh, your course, um, in my youth, right before college, a gap year. And uh, so when, 25 years later, when my wife and I decided we're going to come to Israel, um, and she said, let's do it as far away from Jerusalem as possible so I don't get pulled into some political campaign, uh, I said, well, as far away from Jerusalem as possible, I know a place. And they were glad to take us as, um, uh, as volunteers and uh, residents. And so that is a whole Yen Judea connection. But it's a very special kibbutz formed by Yen Judeans. And it has uh, 92% of its members already have uh, degrees. And I think a third of the members have even graduate degrees. So it's the highest education level. And when you're in the desert, you've got to think on your feet to be able to survive. And so they're very, very, very entrepreneurial. So when we had this idea, they have a whole vetting process where um, almost like a, a VC fund to look at new ideas, and we brought forward the idea, and they were, they were game, and David Rosenblatt in New York was game, and, and it was really to their credit that they uh, invested some money, gave some space, and a lot of leadership, and also they have a good name, and so when we needed to get certain kind of permissions through the bureaucracy, I think they gave us, the people, many people gave us the benefit of the doubt that we weren't kind of uh, sleazy business people, but we, we were trying to be, you know, chalutzim, like pioneers and do something do something good. And by the way, we have one solar field at Keturah right now. There's another seven commercial-scale solar fields uh, all, all over the south that we've already built and interconnected. And uh, under construction now at Keturah is a 40-megawatt solar field that will supply um, by next summer a third of Eilat's energy, um, and that's, that's kind of a big deal. That is a big deal, which really leads me into my next question. Do you, do you think Israel will be able to reach its goal of 10% of its energy from renewable sources by 2020? Well, tell you the truth, I mean, it, it, it pains me to do this. First of all, the EU has a 20% renewables goal by 2020, and they're going to reach it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's shameful that we even have a 10% goal where we have double the amount of sun that they do, and 60% of our country is desert. So uh, we, we as a country have essentially aimed low, and we're unlikely to even hit that. What we very much want, or at least what I want to do, speaking for myself, is to embrace the EU standard of uh, 20% by 2020, uh, we know what the government needs to do. They have to essentially create the quotas so that the fields that are um, uh, gone through a, a whole bunch of uh, what we call pre-development will just be green-lighted, and they need to get out of the way and, and open up the mixot, open up the quotas, and then we could get to 20%, frankly. But right now, we are behind schedule even to hit a lowly 10%. Wow. All right, let's, we do live in the land of miracles. Maybe uh, something miraculous will happen to get well, there. We've got to keep fighting, keep fighting. Uh, 
Your newest solar energy venture is on the quote-unquote dark continent, Africa. Tell us how you ended up in Rwanda. Well, first of all, when you look at these um, pictures from space of Africa at night, uh, it really is a dark continent other than like South Africa and a couple major cities. Um, There's 600 million people in Africa without any power at all. Another couple hundred million that have power intermittently with diesel, which is polluting, bad for you know global warming, and is double, triple the price of solar power. And we don't usually like who manufactures the uh, the diesel in the first place. So uh, there's there's a historic humanitarian and business opportunity in Africa. Um, when we were building that first field at Kibbutz Kutura, something really marvelous happened. One of the great things about being in the middle of nowhere is that you really notice when people come visit you. And so we had people from 58 different countries that year that we were building come visit us, which is really extraordinary. And they're mostly developing poor countries. And what they said was, hey, Startup Nation, can you come and help us start our solar industries? At that point, we were completely overwhelmed, and that's when we called the timeout. Arava only builds in Israel, Arava Power. We'll set up a new company in Area Global, and we're going to be set up to first learn the world. We looked at actually 75 different countries, evaluate where we think we can make a difference, and um, then we focused on a number of countries. Rwanda was very natural to consider high on the list for a variety of reasons. Um, one is, you know, of course they had a genocide 20 years ago, so it's, it's in our heart, and they, um, there's, a, there's a strong identification with Israel and the Jewish people. They want to take their people from darkness to light, both metaphorically and in terms of energy. They have 8% growth, but most importantly is that a, um, a friend and hero of mine who unfortunately just passed away, Anne Heyman, she had heard about the million orphans that were still in Rwanda a decade after the genocide and decided to build an Israeli-style orphan youth village, like you mean or, mm-hmm. outside of Kigali. Uh, it's called the Agahosa Shalom Youth Village. And uh, she had purchased the land, and it's home to 500 orphans in Rwanda. It's really just a place of amazing uh, hope and a leadership academy. Um, and uh, and we were volunteering there as a family a number of years ago, and she put her arm around me. This is after you see the kids and you, you meet the staff and you realize there is really a miracle uh, happening in front of you. She said, Yossi, you see that area behind the school? I want you to build me one of those Israeli solar fields, uh, and I want some of the revenue to come to the village for the next 25 years. Will you do that? And if anybody, any of your listeners have ever met Anne Heyman and heard about her. Yes, I read, um, I, I read, unfortunately, I only read about her after, uh, because of right. her death, yeah. So you don't say no to Anne, uh, even after her um, tragic passing. And so, uh, of course, the only problem with saying of course is that up until a couple of weeks ago, no one had ever built a commercial-scale solar field in all of sub-Saharan Africa. So she was asking us to do the impossible, like what we did in Israel. And um, through the efforts of my partner, Chaim Mutton, 
We've actually now built that first commercial solar field in sub-Saharan Africa, and I'm pleased to say that in her youth village, we're already supplying 7% of Rwanda's total energy needs. Mm, wow. And I, and I understand also to give you guys kudos, uh, you did this whole project in record time. Well, that was Chaim. Uh, you know, if you know Chaim Otsen, uh he's a guy who knows how to make history. Yeah, but also we were very impressed, by the way, with the professionalism of the Rwandan government. Uh, and uh, if only uh, our ministers here uh, were as professional <laughs> all the time as we found in Rwanda, there'd also be more solar power here. All right, fabulous. Great story. I, uh, just a little n- note on the dark continent. I, I was just happened to be in Namibia a few weeks ago, and uh, we were staying out in some desolate parts the whole country is huge uh and there's not many people it's 80 times the size of israel with a quarter of the population and uh went out about a kilometer away from where we were staying in a camp and i've never seen the stars uh that so the, you know there are some uh, benefits to being in in darkness so i'm happy to invite you down to kibbutz Ketura. there's a guest house there uh, karen kalot and uh every night you can just Walk out 100 meters from the guest house, and and you have the view that Avraham Avinu and Sarah uh-huh. Avinu had from uh, the times of the Torah. All right, that that is a bit closer. Um, there was. Let me change subjects now, away from solar. Uh, there was considerable publicity about your attempt to rescue Better Place. Mm. What what went wrong with the original concept, and do you think, in retrospect, you could have salvaged something? Look, it's a great concept, and and they were essentially ahead of their time because now you see every major automaker in the world coming out with an electric version of their cars. And um, so there there was something uh, nearly prophetic about what they were doing. When when Shai Gassi had started up, it was around the same time we were starting our power company, and the... um, and I said to Shai, I said, look, two-thirds of the greenhouse gas emissions of Israel is through the power plants. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that out. We're working on that. And one-third is from transportation, and you're working on that. But why take your electric car and plug it into a dirty grid when we could charge all your batteries with green energy, which makes complete sense. And then Israel could be, could have been, maybe one day will be, but could have, and we've missed this opportunity for now, the first major economy that uh, that goes from being carbon-based for its energy and transportation to being um, uh, solar-based. Because basically, once you charge your batteries with the sun, you have a solar-powered car. And um, I could never get anywhere with him. It was crazy. And... Um, and his staff wanted to do it, even some of his board members wanted to do it, and we tried and we tried and we tried. And so it's just a dream that's too good to, to let go, and it could be transformative for the world if we're able to demonstrate it. So when it, when it crashed as a company, my heart was broken. I was like, oh, my God, this dream now is really dead. And I wrote an article in Jerusalem Post about, you know, someone should pick it up for pennies on the dollar because it has a great infrastructure. And if you don't have to recoup those costs and out of a, a liquidation court, then it should work financially. Uh, I got such great feedback that it turned out to be that it was myself with the um, Amuta, with a nonprofit group of the drivers themselves of the electric cars, 
and we had uh, for a short period of time actually won the rights to run the company. We cut the burn. We came up with a business plan that would work. Shai Agassi needed 100,000 cars to break even, and that was just unrealistic um, given the, the, the way they were doing the pricing. Our business model, you only needed 5,000 electric cars to break even. But frankly, the, um, the government was against, and uh, there were other systemic uh, problems, and, uh, and the whole thing fell apart. And it's probably the most painful public chapter of my life where we were trying to do something good. I had already pledged that if I made any money from it, we would just donate any money we would make as a family to environmental groups in Israel, because we were, we were just trying to save Israel's good name, because it was the biggest flame-out in green tech history, I and mean, it was Israel's shame. And ultimately, you know, not so long ago, I saw a little uh, piece, and one, you know, one of the uh, maybe Bloomberg or something of Elon Musk showing his uh, battery exchange system for uh, his Tesla cars. So, uh, well, I have to say that uh, that was an affirmation again that the the vision was right. They spent way too much money too quickly in too many markets. Um, and when it was a startup, but if it's a huge startup, then any mistake you make can really be very, very, very costly. Mm-hmm. And it's natural for startups to make mistakes. I mean, that's part of our culture, and then you learn from them and, and you adjust. But when you have such a high burn rate, it was $25 million a month at one point, uh, it was unsustainable. So they burned through too much cash mm-hmm. too quickly. But the government undermined them too. No, that's all right. Not 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 a happy story. Uh, no, it's gonna the, uh, talk to me in a year from now, and uh, there, there may be um, there, there may be you know as you said we're we're in the holy land and it's a place of miracles, but that is uh, true. Right now, it's a tough spot. All right, I'll go another place. You you have a long history of being an activist, Soviet Jewry, Ethiopian Jewry, apartheid, uh, all issues where the good guys won. Do you have a current cause? Was was your run for the presidency part of that? That's interesting. Um, look, the run for the presidency is basically understanding that Shimon Peres is really the last of the greats, and um, and so you have to remake. Since there are no more Shimon Peres, uh, you have to recast the role um, of, of the presidency, and, and I really feel that. Uh, you know, what, what do we want the brand equity of Israel to be in the world? Well, for the Jewish people, we want it to be a uh, dynamic, pluralistic uh, Jewish state. And for the rest of the world, we want to represent innovation uh, on behalf of tikkun olam, on behalf of um, changing the world for the better. And so my family, uh, through lots of uh, accidents of history, we, we tend to be associated with both, um, you know, dynamic pluralism in Jewish life. And, you know, when you bring solar energy to Africa, people tend to appreciate that maybe we represent some of the best in uh, Zionism uh, and what we can do for the world. So really wanted to offer the opportunity for the country to think about the presidency um, from that perspective. Uh, but we were just testing the waters. I'm a, I'm a bit on the young side. In terms of a, of a cause, look, we're certainly pushing the solar here and in Africa and elsewhere. And um, my family's involved with uh, Women of the Wall and religious pluralism. They've essentially won. I mean, my wife and daughter were arrested about a year and a half ago. 
for the right to pray out loud and wear talitot prayer shawls in the women's section. It used to be the police used to arrest them, and now the police protect them uh, from the Haredim. But it's it's basically incredibly quiet. The only last right that's missing is the right to read Torah in the women's section with women. And um, my daughter Ashira is 11, and you know we're expecting a bat mitzvah, and we're expecting that she'll have that right um, in time. And we're also uh, deeply troubled by the situation of the uh, African refugees here in Israel. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Susan, my wife led the seder at Cholot, for example, for the refugees, and uh, it's very satisfying that the high court um, just ruled against the state for the second time and actually ordered the dismantling of the Chalot Detention Center. Right. Um, unjust, and uh, we agree. And that's a, that's a very important cause. I mean, like, uh, there's different ways of being a Jewish state. We want to make sure there's a Jewish majority, fine. You know, 40-something thousand refugees aren't going to jeopardize the number balance uh, in any meaningful way. But when we when we can close our eyes to um, to genocide, when we can close, you know, in terms of Darfur, uh, and not treat the the stranger uh, among us with some degree of uh, dignity, then we cease being a Jewish state in a different kind of way, and that's I think a greater threat to to our identity as a as a people and as a country. So we're very pleased with the High Court's ruling, and we're looking forward to dismantle the. Um, Detention centers. And I also I just recently saw advertisement for actually a, an Israeli movie. It's co- it's coming out about this issue, which I think will uh, raise the public's consciousness to what's going on out there. Wow! Look, it's really about what's going on in Eritrea, which is I think a crime against humanity. Uh, it's a failed state, and so you know we know what it's like to go from Egypt and cross Sinai perilously. And, mm-hmm. And um, and seek freedom, and while it's not a responsibility to take in, you know, the whole world, uh, certainly the people who are already here, uh, we should we should we should treat in a dignified way. Agreed. All right, let me f- uh, f- sum up our our call or my last question uh, with this maybe call it a spiritual note. We're a few days before Yom Kippur. Uh, a few months ago, we observed the 20th anniversary yard site of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Uh, it has been reported that you were the last person to have a private audience with him. Can you share with our listeners something about that meeting? It's uh, it's interesting. Like um, you know, when the folks from Lubavitch called me a couple months ago, and they're like, you know, the 20th anniversary is coming. Um, uh, it, it was like I can't believe it's been 20 years. I had the privilege to to be um, with him around him uh, Friday, and then certainly Shabbat, and then Sunday dollars, and then Monday he went to the Ohel to the um, uh, cemetery where his father-in-law, the previous rabbi, was buried, uh, and that's where he suffered his stroke, and then um, a year or so later uh, passed away, and so um, a it's just a very powerful experience to. Uh, be with him when he had his uh, full facilities, uh, and with just the amazing blue eyes that can like sear into your soul. And I had been standing for about four or five hours with him as he was giving uh, blessings and dollars and all of that. I was uh, standing watching by as a reporter, and I my back was hurting. I couldn't like I couldn't do it. And he 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 saw each each person passing before him just like a diamond. 
they say. And um, right at the end of the whole thing, they said, well, why don't you, why don't you go in? And uh, I was like, okay. And um, I asked a particular question. And uh, I'll share the question. I won't share the answer. The question okay. was, you know, why, why do you think that we're the generation that merits geula, that merits redemption? And uh, he gave his answer. Um, and it's one of those answers that when you're, oh, was I 26, 27 or something at the time? Um, uh, actually, no, it was, uh, it was 30, 29, 30. When you that you understand one thing when you're 30 years old. And then as I was really thinking about the 20th uh, yard side, I understood the answer in another way. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just amazing how the same answer got so much more insightful with time. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I'll write about it one day when I do... Uh, Your memoir. When I, when, I, when I finally, uh, you know, when we've electrified Africa and... Uh, and Israel is a shining, you know, light unto the nations, um, and my, my job is done. But uh, for now, just, just really just that we should just have just sweetness and happiness and peace and prosperity and, and good things, and uh, really great questions. Thank you. Amen, and a great, great uh, opportunity for me to speak to you, and uh, it's, I've been fortunate that our, our paths have crossed on a number of occasions, so I'm, I'm glad we had this uh, Mifgash meeting as well, and uh, hope to hope to see more of you during the coming year. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.peacestein.com or look for Philip Stein Associates on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Goodbye.